I'm going to read, and then uh, we're going to let Brandon let it rip. So uh, there's these black Bibles in the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, take one of these home. It's our gift to you. It's an absolute joy to give away Bibles. Um, Oh, shoot, I just lost my place. I'll read. I don't know what page it's on, but I trust that you can find it. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 14 through 21. And if you will, let's show reverence to God's word. And would you stand as I read the word of God? All right, this is Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Daniel, and thanks, JT, for that lovely picture. I'll have to find a way to get you back at some point. So what do you guys think of when you hear the phrase, the riches of Christ, or the riches that we have in Christ? Here in Ephesians, Paul speaks in beautiful imagery and language on what these riches of Christ are. But for us, what does that mean? What is the riches of Christ? And so I once heard a story that helped me understand more fully what this meant, so let me share that with you. There was once a southern plantation owner who had left a very large inheritance for his former slave that had served him faithfully throughout his life to the tune of about $1 million. And so one day, the lawyer contacts this former slave to let him know of his inheritance. He says, hey, there's an inheritance of $1 million here. It's available for you for your withdrawal at the local bank. Feel free to come by any, at any point to, to withdraw. And so week and week go by, and then months pass, And the former slave never taps into his inheritance, never goes to the bank to withdraw. And so the lawyer reaches out again just to remind him, hey, just so you know, you have this inheritance. It's at the bank for you, for you to withdraw at any time. And the former slave, he he responds, sir, do you think that I could have 50 cents to buy a sack of cornmeal? And so this former slave had no experience with handling or dealing with money or inheritance or wealth at all. And he fails to comprehend that, that he had a rich inheritance at his fingertips, at his disposal. And we, similarly, we fail to comprehend the riches that we have in Christ. We fail to comprehend the magnitude of the love of God. And Paul here is not talking about financial riches. Paul is talking about the spiritual riches that we have in the gospel. And here in Ephesians, in this letter, Paul talks in great length about the spiritual riches that we have in the gospel. And Paul, he penned this letter from Rome, from his imprisonments, and he probably wrote this letter to encourage his Ephesian readers. He wanted to inform them of the truths of the gospel and then how to live in light of those truths. And so Ephesians is six chapters long. It's neatly divided into two halves. Chapters one through three is Paul explaining and elaborating the riches of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. And then chapters four through six is how to live in light of the gospel. And so where do we find ourselves today? 
We find ourselves right in the middle, at the end of chapter 3. We have arrived with Paul on this 14er mountain peak passage that's here in Ephesians. And Paul, he's transitioning from the deep gospel truths of chapters 1 through 3 to how to live those out in chapters 4 through 6. And he's praying for his Ephesian readers and for us to comprehend more fully the love of God in Christ. And so again, we along with the former slave, we fail to comprehend the riches that we have in Christ. We fail to comprehend the love of God. And so Paul is longing for his readers to experience this more fully. And then this should lead us to come prayerfully before God the Father in adoration. And that, ad- that word adoration is, is, a, is something we're going to talk about a few times today. And it's not a commonly word used in our language today. And so what adoration means is a deep love, respect, or praise paid to someone we revere. Or the awe that we have for someone or something. But Due to living in a fallen and broken world, we tend to become distracted from the love of God, become distracted from adoration. And so we need to be strengthened to experience this adoration, to experience this love. And Paul, we see here that he is in a state of adoration. He is praying on his knees before the, before the Lord because he's marveling at the vastness of the power of God. And we tend to not have a heart of adoration because we have a lack of comprehension. And so where does this take us this morning? It is my hope that we can take away this. Because of God's riches in Christ, we should be moved to adoration in prayer. Because of God's riches in Christ, we should be moved to adoration in prayer. And so I have three main points for us today to walk through together. The first main point is this. Because of God's riches in Christ, we should pray in a posture of humility. The second main point, because of God's riches in Christ, we should pray for deeper comprehension. And the third main point, because of God's riches in Christ, we should pray that he would be glorified through us. So let's go ahead and dive in the first main point here. Because of God's riches in Christ, we should pray in a posture of humility. And this covers verses 14 through 15. So what does praying in a posture of humility look like? It looks like approaching the throne of God with reverence and awe because we recognize the magnitude of God's love and power and we acknowledge the depth of our sinfulness. We see in the first sentence here, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So we see here that that Paul is, is kneeling. He's bowing before the Lord. And he says, for this reason. And so that should trigger us to ask, well, what is this reason, Paul, that you are kneeling for? And there's a couple different explanations for this. One possible explanation is that in the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And then he kind of breaks off his thought to explain his calling as an apostle and to confirm that the gospel message is for everyone, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Paul then finishes that section by asking the readers not to lose heart over what Paul is suffering through his imprisonment. And so, one of the reasons could be is that Paul doesn't want his Ephesian readers to be discouraged, that Paul is suffering on their behalf, on, his, on their behalf for him. And so that's one possible reason, and I think that is part of the reason. Uh, but Paul picks up in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees. And so what I think Paul is doing, I think he's bowing before God because he's just overwhelmed at all of the gospel truths that he just finished explaining in the first three chapters of this letter. And he's moved to pray in a state of awe and reverence because he's just beholding the beauty and the glory of God. And he's lifting up his prayer to the King of Kings for his beloved church here in Ephesus. And so we see Paul is kneeling before the Lord. For this reason I bow my knees. And that's plural. 
So notice how he's using both his knees. He's not pulling a Tim Tebow here and just praying on one knee. No, Paul is praying on both of his knees here. And that's because this is his state of his heart. This is his posture. His reflection of his posture is where his heart is at currently. His only appropriate response is, is humble adoration here. So let me ask you, how do you approach God? Where is your heart and your mind at when you approach the throne of God in prayer? You see, we tend to be a very distracted people, especially in regards to prayer. We enter prayer, but typically our mind is just off to the races, thinking about a number of other things, uh, what needs to get done at work, that homework assignment that's lingering, maybe a certain relationship, or what your weekend plans are, or what's for lunch that day. That one's usually me. But we tend to get distracted, and we tend to rush our prayers. And sometimes we even have a hard time making time for prayer. And when we do, it's a distracted prayer. So we see here that Paul is he's led to a state of humility. But what does humility really mean? How would you guys define humility? C.J. Mahaney puts it like this. Honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And so we need to acknowledge how we are a sinful and broken people and how we fall short of the glory of God. And the more and more that we can understand the depth and the severity of our sinfulness, the more and more we'll marvel at God's forgiveness toward us and Christ's love and power. God, in his sovereignty, he chose to set his love upon us. In chapter 1, Paul says, God, in love, predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. So even when we were undeserving, God chose to set his love upon us. And even the fact that we can approach God and meet God in prayer is a blessing and a display of his riches and his power and his love for us. Earlier in chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul says that we have boldness and access with confidence to draw near to the throne. And then in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16, the author says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So what a blessing and a beautiful reality that it is that we can even approach God in prayer because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And we can approach God with boldness and with confidence. So, we see from Paul's model that we should approach prayer in a posture of humility. But what does this look like practically? Does it mean that we too should also kneel when we pray? And the answer is, maybe. It really comes down to the posture of our hearts. You see, God looks upon the hearts. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said to Samuel regarding Saul and David, he says, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the hearts. Or in Jeremiah 17, 10, it says, I, the Lord, search the hearts and test the mind. And in the scriptures, we see that Solomon prayed on his knees, Ezra prayed on his knees, Daniel prayed on his knees, Peter prayed on his knees, and even Jesus prayed on his knees. So we see plenty of examples in scriptures of people who were praying on their knees. But we also see in scripture plenty of examples of people who were not praying on their knees. So we know that it is not required of us to pray on our knees. But I do think that our posture helps shape our heart and our minds. Our posture can prepare and engage our hearts. So let me ask you a question and raise your hands. How many of you have had a phone interview in here? Yeah? A good amount of you. And think about what you were wearing, how you were dressed for that phone interview. Raise your hand if you were in pajamas. Yeah, (laughs) okay. Three of you. Maybe sweats, 
something comfortable, because you knew that the employer, the interviewer, was not going to see what you were wearing. So what did it matter? What you were dressed in. Or maybe you did dress up as you would for a normal interview, and you had a suit jacket, and you had slacks and a tie. I remember uh, one time I had a, a video interview with uh, corporate Chipotle, and I looked really good from, from the waist up. I had a suit jacket, I had a button-up shirt, I had tie, I even had a tie bar, but the bottom half I was just wearing my boxers. So, <laughs> Thankfully, I didn't have to stand up at all during the interview. And so you may have heard this before, but this is something I learned in college, is that when you have a phone interview, you should dress to how you would normally if you were going to have a face-to-face interview. And why is this? It's because it prepares us. It engages us. If we engage in a phone interview the same way we would normally as a face-to-face interview with what we're wearing, it's going to show in our speech, in our mannerisms, and in our confidence. It gets us in the right frame of minds. Is it required? No. The interviewer, the employer can't see what you're wearing, but should we do it? Well, yeah, we want to approach this interview in the best position possible, so we are going to dress up. And so similarly with prayer, we want to approach prayer in a posture of humility. And one way to do so is by praying on our knees. Praying on our knees can also help alleviate some of the distractions that we talked about earlier. As we get down on our knees besides our bed, or wherever it may be, it's shaping our mindsets. We are assessing our position before a holy and just God. And we're acknowledging that because of Christ, we can even approach the throne of God in prayer. And that's a blessing. So another tool that can help us enter prayer in a posture of humility is the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. And many of you have probably heard of it. It's pretty popular. I'm not even sure where it originated from, but essentially it's, it's a letter for each element of prayer. So the A stands for adoration. So as we approach prayer, the first element that helps us get into this posture is adoration. It's here that we're bringing to mind the Lord's goodness, his sovereignty, his wisdom, his justice, his kindness, his love, and his mercy. We are focusing our attention on the Lord. We are adoring who God is. And that leads then to the second acronym, or the second letter, C, which stands for confession. It is here we are assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness, We are acknowledging the many ways that we have fallen short of the glory of God. We are bringing to mind all the ways that we have sinned throughout the day in light of who God is. And we are asking for his forgiveness. And that transitions us to T, which stands for thanksgiving. And it is here that we give thanks to God for salvation, for his love, for his mercy, that he has freely bestowed and lavished upon us. It's also here that we can thank the Lord for the many blessings that we have in this life, the gifts that we have. We're acknowledging the giver of these good gifts. And that leads us to the last letter, S, which stands for supplication or petition. And it is here that we are bringing our requests before God and the requests of others. We are asking the Lord for the desires of our hearts. So in this model, notice how we don't ask God for things until the ends. And why is that? It's because we're working ourselves into a posture of humility and adoration as we approach God. And so utilizing this acronym, it can just help alleviate some distractions. It can help focus us as we enter prayer. So how do your prayers typically start? Do they usually start with the supplication aspect, asking God for things, or do they usually start with adoration? And so through praying on our knees or utilizing this acronym ACTS, it can move us to recognizing the riches that we do have in Christ. And that adoration then leads us to a posture of humility.
But remember, these things are not required of us. It's not about doing this or that specific thing. God looks on the hearts. These aren't formulas that are going to guarantee success. Although I do love formulas, being a finance nerd. (laughs) But these are tools that we can utilize to help orient and prepare our hearts to draw before the throne of grace in humility. So, let's transition to the second main point today. Because of God's riches in Christ, we should pray for deeper comprehension. And this covers verses 16 through 19. So let's, let's look at it again. Look with me at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so from the imagery to the passion to the beautiful truths, we see that this is a heartfelt and genuine prayer from Paul for his Ephesian church. And ultimately, Paul is praying for an increased comprehension of this church so that they understand and more fully experience Christ's love and power. So in verse 16, Paul starts off by saying, according to the riches of his glory, and then he proceeds on. And so God gives to us according to the riches of his glory, and God is infinitely glorious. He has an abundance of riches to give and to bestow upon us. And chapters 1 through 3 of this letter are pretty much the highlight reel of what those riches are. In chapter 1, we see that we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We have an internal inheritance that we've been given the Holy Spirit as our helper. And then in chapter 2, Paul calls our attention to the depths of our sinfulness. Paul says that we were spiritually dead, that we had no spiritual life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we just lived according to our own passions According to the flesh, we were by nature children of God. Paul is bringing to mind the reality of our sinfulness and that apart from God, we were a hopeless people. But then Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so here we see the riches of God in Christ, the beautiful riches in Christ. Our sin is separated us from God. And God is just, and in his justice, he needed to deal with that sin. And that's where Jesus steps in and takes our place. Jesus lived the perfect life that we failed to live. And Jesus, in love, goes to the cross to make payment for our sins that we deserved. The death that Jesus went through was the death that was deserved for us. And when Christ rose from the dead three days later, it signified that Christ's death was sufficient and that it secured our salvation. And so if you haven't experienced the riches of Christ, if you haven't experienced the love and the grace of God, you can do that today. As we acknowledge our sin, as we acknowledge that we fall short of God's glory, we turn and we repent of our sins. We acknowledge our need for a Savior. And then we turn and we place our trust and our faith wholly in the finished work of Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection. And through that, we experience a deep peace in it eternal, everlasting joy. And that's what, that's what moves Paul to prayer here. He's praying that this Ephesian church, and also for us, that we would comprehend more fully and experience more fully the love of Christ. 
So Paul prays in verse 16, then moving on, that God may grant his readers to be strengthened with power through spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. So there's a lot going on there. So let's just take that one step at a time. We are strengthened with power through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what supplies us as believers with the power and the strength of God. And this strengthening is passive because it's the Spirit who's applying the power of God to us. We see in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And so we see that when we place our trust in Christ, we are sealed or we're stamped with the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit guarantees our salvation. It guarantees our inheritance. The Spirit is also what enables us to comprehend more and more the love of God. So what does Paul say next? He says that we are strengthened in our inner being. And this just means our inner man or our inner woman, our spiritual self. Our spiritual self is being strengthened through the Spirit. So let's look at the next verse. Let's keep moving here. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so the Ephesians that are being addressed in this letter, they're already Christians. These Ephesians already have faith in Christ. And so what Paul then means simply is that he wants them to experience an indwelling of Christ with more power. He wants the Ephesians and us to experience more of the love of Christ as he dwells within us. And that word dwell, it can mean to settle down or to make a permanent residence. And so Paul wants us to allow Christ to settle down in our hearts, to make a permanent residence in our hearts. And through this, through his dwelling in us, we experience more of his love and his power. Paul doesn't want Christ to just be a stranger dwelling in us. No, Paul wants Christ to dwell permanently inside of us. So let's look at the next verse here. That you being rooted and grounded in love. And so Paul is using a lot of imagery here to illustrate the love of Christ. He's saying that we're rooted and grounded. And there's two illustrations going on. One is agricultural and one is architectural. So the agricultural one is Paul saying that we're rooted in love. Paul is comparing the Christian to a plant. And a plant, it's, it's rooted and it finds its nourishment from the soil and from water and from the sunlight. And we as Christians, we find our nourishment from the love of God. The second illustration Paul uses, he says that we are grounded in love. So the Christian is being compared to a building that's being established on God's love as the foundation. God's love is depicted here as a solid and a firm foundation that we stand on. So, so then, being established, being built on, and being nourished by God's love then enables us to extend that same love to others. As a Christian, the natural outworking of our faith it should be love. The natural outworking of our faith in Christ is love. And so as we experience and comprehend God's love, we extend that same love toward others. The more we experience, the more we extend. And let us remember that we love others because we've first been shown love from our Heavenly Father. So next, Paul says in verse 18, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And so again, we see Paul is praying that they would comprehend. And that doesn't just mean merely to understand. But comprehend also means to experience. 
Paul is emphasizing the immeasurable amounts of Christ's glory and his love for us. These dimensions, these breadth, height, length, and depth, they're not, they cannot be measured. We can't know Christ's love exhaustively because it's far too great. It's far too infinite. But we can know Christ's love truly. And John Stott says this about this passage. He says, The love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind's long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. And what a beautiful reality that that is ours in Christ. And when I think about these dimensions, the the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, I can't help but think about camping in the summertime. Uh, Recently, a group of us went down to Telluride uh, and camped outside this town. And Telluride is a, a beautiful mountain town, just surrounded on all sides by steep, jagged mountains. Uh, and we, so we followed a dirt road pretty far above the town, and we camped out on top of this meadow that overlooked a beautiful mountain range. It overlooked Mount Wilson. And if, if you don't know, that Mount Wilson is what's on your Coors Light beer can. Uh, so fun fact for the day. But I know that we're beer snobs here, so I know a lot of you don't even drink Coors Light. <laughs> But anyways, we just had this surreal view of this majestic mountain range. And being that far away from the town, and being that high in elevation, it made for a grand appearance of the stars. And you guys know the feeling. You're laying out there under the stars, you're looking up just in awe of the night sky, and you're just wondering, like, how many stars are there? Like, how far away are they? How big are they? How many are out there? And so we just get lost in our own thoughts as we behold the vastness of the night sky. And I can't help but think of this as just a sliver of Christ's love for us. The breadth, the height, the length, the depth that these stars encompass is just a mere fraction of God's love for us. David says in Psalm 103, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So moving on, this brings us to our last phrase here in this section of verses 16 through 19. It says, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that mean, to be filled with the fullness of God? And what it means is that we can be filled with the fullness that is in God himself. As we are filled, we are becoming more like Christ because Christ is in the full deity of God the Father. And we just saw that Paul desires Christ to dwell permanently and powerfully within us, within our hearts. And in doing so, we are becoming more and more like Christ. We are being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this doesn't mean that we are becoming God. Rather, it means that we are becoming like God. And John MacArthur paints a helpful picture. He says it like this. He says, if I go down to the Pacific Ocean and I take a glass and I scoop up some of the ocean It wouldn't be proper to say that the entire Pacific Ocean is in my glass because there's much more. It is vast and vastly beyond my glass. All of the ocean is not in my glass, but all that the ocean is, is in my glass. So we are not God, but we are being filled with the essence of who God is, and we are being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. So we need to ask ourselves, Are we regularly praying for a deeper comprehension of God's love for us? So as we approach the throne in prayer, in a posture of humility, let us plead with God for us to experience more of his love for us. 
Let us with Paul pray that we may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints the vast love of God. A love so great that it surpasses knowledge. A love so great that it is immeasurable and not even calculable. And let's plead with the Lord to continually fill us with his fullness. Let's transition now into our last main point and our final two verses of this passage. Because of God's riches in Christ, we should pray that God would be glorified through us. Because of God's riches in Christ, we should pray that God would be glorified through us. And this is in verses 20 and 21. Let's look at it again. Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And so here we come to the climax of Paul's prayer. It's a beautiful doxology. And a doxology is simply an expression of praise to God. It's usually short and it can be sung. So just picture Paul singing and shouting these last two verses here. And I think Paul is singing two truths here. The first truth is that God will work. And the second truth is that God will be glorified. So let's look at the first truth. God will work. In verse 20 it says, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And that word abundantly could also be translated to exceedingly or infinitely. So God is infinitely able to do more than all that we can ask for or even think of asking. Paul is showing his absolute confidence that God will work. And because the Apostle Paul has this confidence that God will work, we also should have the same assurance and confidence that God will work. And he will work to accomplish his purposes. Paul says, according to the power at work within us. We know that God will work in us and through us to accomplish his purposes. We've already seen this. When we believe in the gospel, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells in us. It's what strengthens our inner selves. So God will work mightily through us because God dwells in us. God is on mission to restore relationships between sinners and himself. And he's been on mission ever since the beginning. We see this back in Ephesians chapter 1 when Paul says that God's eternal purposes is to unite all things together. God is able and he's willing to do far more than what we can even think possible to build and advance his kingdom purposes. And in your own lives, you may be asking for the Lord to work mightily through you, and that's a great thing. Keep doing that. And you may even be seeing the Lord work at, you may be seeing the Lord at work in your life, and that's an amazing thing. But yet God is still saying that I can do far more than that. I can do far more than you even think possible. So keep asking God to be at work in your workplace, in the classroom, at home, in this church, while knowing at the same time that God is saying, I can do far more than that. So let's keep praying big prayers and tapping into the riches and the resources that we have in Christ. Pray big prayers for how you would like the Lord to work through you, and then watch as he does far more than you even thought possible. And for me, uh, I think back to about four years ago, as Daniel kind of alluded to, uh, when I was applying for my finance position at Otterbox, I had just graduated from Colorado State University, go Rams, and I did one last final hoorah, and I backpacked through Europe. And when I returned from Europe, I experienced the deep, deep love of Christ, and I became a follower of Christ. The Lord, by grace through faith, gave me new desires. He gave me new passions, new motivations, 
And so when I returned to, to Colorado, I had to move to Denver to start working as a broker in training. Uh, and just to keep that short and above reproach, just to say I was not a fan of that job. <laughs> but a friend of mine who's actually here today told me about a position opening up at Otterbox. Uh, and Otterbox was practically my dream job. I had wanted to so badly work there all throughout college for a number of reasons. One, because I had heard and I had seen of the company and just how much fun they have and how much they give back to the community and that sounded awesome to be a part of that team. And two, it, allowed me, it would have allowed me to, to stay here in Fort Collins. And I mean, who, who would want to leave this place, right? I mean, we have Choice City Butcher. So good. <laughs> but also, it would have allowed me to still live the same college lifestyle that I was living, which was just marked by me gratifying my own desires of the flesh and my sin. So, I had already applied 12 times to Otterbox. And so I was like, well, the 13th time is a charm. But I had a new perspective walking into this. Uh, I had a new motivation. My, my, my new purpose wasn't just to desire my own selfish ambitions or be wildly successful. But no, it was to, to glorify the Lord and to advance his kingdom. And so I approached this interview just a totally different mentality. I trusted in the Lord's sovereignty. And for the first time, I was able to say, it doesn't matter if I don't get this job. Although I don't like my job here in Denver, I'm in a good church with a good community, and I'm growing a lot in my faith. I was trusting the Lord's sovereignty. While at the same time, I was definitely asking the Lord to give me the desire to work at Otterbox. And thankfully, the Lord did. He did give me this job. But I learned that my value was not tied in with my success or my job. I laid down the idol of Otterbox at the feet of God, and I was open-handed as I approached that interview process. But graciously, the Lord did answer my prayer, and he brought me back to Fort Collins. And he brought me to Otterbox, an amazing company. He brought me to this amazing church. But he was saying, watch as I do far more abundantly than all that you'd asked or even thought to ask. And he's been at work. He's been shaping my desires, my passions, and he's been opening doors. Over the past several years, I've just had more and more desire to, to work in ministry, whatever that looks like, whatever that means. And the, the Lord has been opening up doors, like the opportunity to preach before you all this morning, and the opportunity next week to, to come on as an intern here at the crossing, to, to serve you and to, to establish a, a, a college ministry at CSU. And one of our goals as an intern, as an intern here, one of our goals as a church is to, is to get a college ministry established, is to get on campus, because college was such a formative time in my life, and I think it was probably for many of you as well. And so I would love to see us as a church really rally around the campus and to see God work mightily on CSU's campus. And so I prayed for the opportunity to work at Otterbox, and the Lord answered, and he said, hey, watch as I do far more than what you thought possible. And Lord willing, he's going to use this church to reach the campus, to reach the lost, to raise up godly men and women on campus. And so I invite you, Crossing Church family, to pray big with me to pray that God would be at work through this church to reach that campus. I invite you to watch and see how the Lord works so thus to raise up men and women on campus. And so I've seen the power of this passage at work in my life, and I know that a lot of you have seen the same thing. You can attest to the same thing, that God has shown up and worked in mighty ways. So keep asking, keep praying big prayers, and trust that the Lord will do far more abundantly than all that you would set your mind to. All right, let's look at the second truth here, that God will be glorified. In verse 21, it says, To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So what is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? John Piper says simply, 
The glory of God is the beauty and brightness of his infinite perfections. The beauty and brightness of his infinite perfections. He then goes on to say, when your heart breaks out in the words, glory to God, it is like a football team carrying their coach off the field on their shoulders, or like a standing ovation at Orchestra Hall, or like the waving and cheers of the crowds on the docks as the battleship comes home after victory. So the reality is, is that we were made to praise and worship. We were made to have adoration for something. So the question is, is what are we giving our praise to? What are we giving our adoration to? And Paul says resoundingly here, to God be glory in the church and in Christ forever. And so what does that phrase, to God be glory in the church, mean? Well, earlier in Ephesians, Paul said that we were all one body, that we were one member, that we were one body with fellow members of the household of God. We were one church, essentially, is what Paul was saying earlier. And then Paul says that through that one body, or through that church, the many facets and aspects of God's wisdom would be made known to all. So essentially what Paul is saying is that God's glory and his eternal purposes would be put on display through the church, through us. And then Paul says next, to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And so God is glorified in the church because the object of our glory is Christ Jesus. So we as a church, we point to the glory and the riches that are found in Christ. And you may have heroes in your life, and that's a great thing. But the reality is the glory of those heroes that you have, it will fade and it will diminish. But the glory of Christ will never fade. It's an eternal glory. And as we grow as Christians, we will continue to behold and be transformed by the glory of Christ. So, let's let the truth of the beauty of the gospel hit us and move us to adoration. Let's pray big prayers because God is able and he's willing to do far more than whatever you can ask or think to ask. So I invite you to think back in your life the ways that God has worked mightily in the prayers that you've had. Think back, reflect on those, that's good. But also, what are some of the current big prayers that you have? Maybe it's healing for someone close to you. Or maybe it's finding a godly spouse. Or maybe it's family reconciliation and restoration. Or maybe it's salvation for someone that you love that's very close to you. So I invite you to keep praying big prayers. Pray that God would be glorified through you individually and through us corporately as a church body. So, as we close our time together this morning, I want to just share a a verse from a song by a group called Beautiful Eulogy, and I think this verse really highlights a lot of the different aspects that we were talking about in our main points today. It really reflects what adoration and prayer looks like. O God, full of glory and grace, open in me a fountain of faithful praise. Let it flow from the depths of my heart like great lakes. Let my soul be the sweetness that spreads its fragrance. Save me from the love of the world that you created, more than the God whose beautiful hands made it. Break me from pride and consecrate me. Make me feel the weight of my sin, sorrow, and safety. Let me sing with the saints of your great salvation and join in the song of all creation. Let the winds obey, the oceans wave, the mountains cave. Let every star you place display grace. Let my speech do the same as the skies proclaim. Let everything that has life and breath bless your name. Let the earth be the stage where all creation aims to heaven in endless praises and adoration. And so we've journeyed with Paul, and we've climbed this 14er mountain peak passage here in Ephesians. And the truth is that we are rich in Christ, that we do have an inheritance in Christ. 
And Paul gives us here a great model to follow as we approach prayer. And it starts with tasting the riches of Christ. And that taste then cultivates adoration in our hearts and it moves us to pray in humility before God. So as we enter prayer, as we draw near to the throne of God, let's reflect on the depth and severity of our sinfulness and then marvel at the forgiveness that's been shown to us in Christ. Let's approach the King of Kings in a posture of humility. Let's plead with the Lord for us to experience and comprehend more and more of his love for us. And let's be a people, let's be a church who desire, to be, desire God to be glorified through us. Let's not follow the pattern of the former slave who failed to comprehend the riches that he had, the inheritance that he had at his fingertips, but rather, let's with Paul, let's follow Paul to the mountaintop to behold the vastness of the beauty and the love of God, and let us praise him with hearts full of adoration. Let's pray.